Well, we've come to the end of this book, 1 Peter, and as Peter gets to the end, he says this, I have written to you briefly. Now, let me say that apparently in those days, letters generally averaged 87 words, whilst 1 Peter has over 1,800 words. So if you wonder where preachers get their lack of understanding of time from, uh, it goes right back to the beginning of the Bible. So today I'm going to share briefly with you how Peter encourages us. And one of the things Peter is trying to do, you'll have noticed in verse 12, as he writes this letter is to encourage each of us, if we're a Christian this afternoon, to stand firm in the true grace of God. He says that in verse 12. He's written to us and to his readers about the true grace of God. And his encouragement is for us to stand fast in the true grace of God. Now, throughout this series, we've talked about different people around the world who are doing just that. People who, under great opposition, are standing firm for Jesus. We talked about a lady called Hei Wu, imprisoned in North Korea, bereaved and abandoned, and yet still able day by day to cast her cares upon her heavenly father. We've spoken in the past about a lady called Helen Bahani, living in Eritrea and beaten to within an inch of her life, and yet even in the face of that, able to thank God in the midst of unimaginable suffering. I spoke a few weeks ago about two ladies, Miriam and Marzier, disowned and shamed in Iran, and yet still able to stand firm in the grace of God. So as Peter encourages us, we have examples even today around the world of people who stand firm in the true grace of God. But you might be thinking, and I've said it throughout this series, that's great for them, but aren't they superheroes? What about an ordinary person like me? You know, it sounds great for these remarkable Christians to stand firm in the face of unimaginable suffering. But I'm not like them. What does it mean for me to stand firm in the true grace of God tomorrow as I go to work or as I go on holiday or whatever I do? What does it look like for me to stand firm in the true grace of God? Well, let me summarise Peter's letter very briefly for you and then focus today on one particular way in which he encourages us in chapter five to stand firm. But if you read through uh, 1 Peter, what you discover is this. Christians stand firm knowing that even though the world may kill us, we have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an imperishable inheritance. We stand firm by looking to the future. We stand firm knowing that everything we go through, whatever level of suffering we're facing, God never wastes it. He intends the trials and tribulations that we face to purify our faith in order that we may obtain our future salvation when Jesus is revealed. That's chapter one. And so Peter finishes chapter one and says, the way you stand firm is by fixing your eyes, not on your circumstances, but on the remarkable future that lies ahead of you. In the middle of his book, he has this challenging section that is beautifully interwoven with examples of our saviour. And Peter says, the way you stand firm 
is by knowing that your Lord Jesus walked the road of suffering before you and he blazed a path for you to follow. He was the pioneer of your faith. So whatever God calls you to, he only calls you to follow in Jesus's footsteps. He only calls you to go where he already has been. We stand firm, Peter said, we've seen in the last few weeks, knowing that Jesus was and is the triumphant sufferer. He went down into death and defeated it and rose from death and defeated all enemies, spiritual and physical. If we trust in Jesus, we trust in the triumphant sufferer, the one who has conquered. And Peter says last week, we stand firm knowing that as we share in Christ's sufferings, as we experience suffering as Christians, we are proven by that suffering. Our faith is strengthened in it and through it. And today, as we finish the book of First Peter, Peter says, do all of these things. Seek to stand firm. And day by day, one of the ways you do that, verse 5, is this. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. He says to all of us, all of you, each day as you get up, clothe yourselves with humility. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian for. It doesn't matter what your status is, what your wealth is. Rich and poor get the same clothes. Women and men get the same clothes in God's economy. The educated and the illiterate get the same clothes. Peter says, all of you, if you want to stand firm in the true grace of God, clothe yourselves in humility. Cultivate a life of humility. And that's something for us to think about today. As we think about what does it mean to be be humble, we're talking about something which we almost don't want to show off. We don't We almost don't want to notice it happening, but we want us as we go about our lives together to grow in this characteristic which shapes everything and yet almost causes us to sink into the background. And I just want to focus on three ways uh, this afternoon that Peter says we should cultivate humility as a church as we seek to together stand firm in the grace of God. And three ways in which three directions in which we can look in order that we might grow in humility. So firstly, Peter says, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and grow in humility. Verse five, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Peter's saying, as you get up each day and look in the mirror, what do you see? Because as Peter looks at the church, he sees sheep who are in need of shepherds now that actually requires a great deal of humility for us we like to think that we are the masters of our own fate we're in charge of everything we don't like to think of ourselves as people in need of help but peter says one of the reasons jesus calls us into churches is that we might be cared for that we might be looked after So can I ask you this afternoon, are we humble enough to acknowledge that we need the help and support of others? And particularly, we need the help and support of 
our elders as we walk the road marked with suffering. As I was reading through these verses this week, I, I was conscious leadership is a really contentious issue, isn't it? I spoke about it a while ago when we looked at uh, Zechariah 10 and 11. Leadership opens up the potential for the abuse of prerogative and power, doesn't it? And so when Peter says, submit yourselves to your elders, he's conscious, I'm conscious. That's not a simple command for us to follow. But Peter says, as you seek to stand firm in the true grace of God, one of the ways you do that is by humbling yourselves and submitting to the leadership of those in your church. It's a command for everyone, but interestingly in verse 5, Peter particularly singles out those who are young. Because it's a particular danger, I think, for those who are young to think that we can do everything in our own strength. And Peter is saying, this is humbling, but submit yourself to your leaders. But before I move on and talk about what Peter says to the leaders, notice it isn't blind submission. Peter doesn't just say, here are your leaders and tough, you've just got to do what they say. He lays out before us what we're to hold our leaders accountable to, what we're to expect from our leaders, so that as we submit to them, we submit to them because they are displaying the characteristics that Peter describes in these verses. So he says, well, let me first say this, Peter said in verse 1, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Peter's establishing the kind of hierarchy in church. I'm going to just geek out for a couple of minutes, so switch off if you want to. In the New Testament, there are a number of different words used to describe leaders in the church. When you, when you see the descriptions about leaders in the New Testament, a number of different words are used. One is presbyteros, that is translated elder. Another is episkopos, which is often translated bishop or overseer. And very occasionally the word poimino, which is shepherd or pastor. Those three words are used in different places in the New Testament. Now, when you read descriptions of the leaders, I think, and a lot of people think, these words are basically interchangeable. That the New Testament writers aren't describing different types of leader in the church, but just one type of leadership patterned after one saviour, our Lord Jesus. So that's why as a church, we believe that the church should be led by elders, and that is the structure that we have. And whenever you read the New Testament writers talking about elders, it always seems to assume that there will be more than one in a church, that there will be a plurality of leaders to hold one another accountable and to seek to pattern the leadership of the church after the shepherding of our Lord Jesus. Now, that's just me being a geek. Um, take, take from that what you want to. But that's how the New Testament outlines, in my mind, the way the church should be led. The church is led by elders. And this is the challenge for our elders here this afternoon and for those who aspire to be elders. Verse two, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. As you seek to submit to the leadership of the church, here's three things you should be looking for. People who do it gladly, not grudgingly. 
So those who serve as elders do it not because they must, but because they're willing. Not because they're hired hands who do the bare minimum required to get a paycheck. Now, elders are to be those who give as God gives, lavishly, graciously, patiently, lovingly, and gently. Church leaders, secondly, should be not grabbers, but givers. Peter says, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, the reality is that the gospel that we proclaim is free. And so elders should give of themselves freely as they seek to serve the congregation. Now, just as a caveat, and I'm leaving so I can say this, um, 1 Peter 5 says that pastors should be paid. In fact, Paul even suggests there that they are worthy of double honour, and the word, the Greek word honour uh, even is of pay. Now, we don't need to argue about that, but the, <laughs> the, the point I think that the New Testament is making is, yes, the gospel is free, and so therefore the church isn't paying a pastor for the work he does. The church is providing for their pastor so that he can freely give and he can serve the congregation it's a terrible situation where a church thinks, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. Because when that happens, well, then the pastor basically seeks to get whatever he can from the congregation and just grows in resentment. I'm speaking to a congregation that has been extremely generous and I am very thankful for that. But can I encourage you in that? As congregations are generous towards their pastors, you free them up to eagerly and generously give without calculating or worrying or panicking. It's one of those things perhaps to discuss as a church, but that was just as an aside. Elders give gladly, not grudgingly. They give as givers, not as grabbers. And thirdly, elders are not emperors, but examples. Peter's clear, elders should not be proud. There's a sense in which when you walk into a church, you shouldn't know who is leading that church. That's very humbling and challenging to say. But there's a sense in which those who lead the church should look very, very ordinary, very unremarkable. They're not emperors. They're examples, examples of humility, of self-sacrificial love for God, of passion in worship, of generosity, of devotion to friends and family, of obedience to Jesus so Peter says are you humble enough to submit yourself to people who will lead you not any old person but people who follow the pattern that Jesus set the pattern outlined in these verses and as we read them well it may tempt us to be critical of our leaders but I hope it encourages us first and foremost to pray for those who lead us to commit them to God and ask that God would work in them and shape in their hearts this kind of servant leadership. Because it's a leadership ultimately, verse 4, patterned on the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd who appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You see, anyone who leads in the church doesn't lead in their own authority or out of their own ability. They lead patterned by the good shepherd. And Jesus was precisely that good shepherd, wasn't he? When you see the way he lived his life, 
as he came towards the end of his life, he was on his knees in the dust. As his death was weighing heavily upon him, all he could think about was washing the feet of his disciples and carrying them, stooping down to wash their filthy feet. And Peter says, those in leadership, and actually all of us, are to seek to follow that pattern, a pattern of self-sacrifice. So Peter says we need to be humble as a church. And one of the ways we're humble is by looking in the mirror and recognising that we're sheep in need of shepherds. We need people to lead us and to care for us and to encourage us and to help us stand firm. And are we going to be a congregation that allows that to happen? Or a congregation where we're constantly fighting with one another, constantly trying to get to the top or just bitter and resentful of different people within the life of the church. Look in the mirror, Peter says. Secondly, he says, look up. Look up and that should humble you. Verse six and seven, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on you because he cares for you. So verse five says, clothe yourself in humility. It's an active um, command for us to do. Verse six is in the passive voice. Peter says, humble yourselves, but it's as if it's not something that we can do, but actually something that is done to us. And he says, the way you do that is by looking up. I remember, uh, I think it was for Emma's 30th birthday, we went to a place in Kenya um, in one of the national parks and it was called the Ark. And you kind of stay in this lodge, which is by a watering hole and you kind of watch the elephants and the buffalo come. And it was wonderful. And then the next day as we were leaving, uh, the park was just near uh, Mount Kenya, which I hadn't seen at that stage. And we were driving out of the lodge and uh, the driver said, oh, yeah, look ahead. Look, there's Mount Kenya. And I looked up and I couldn't see it. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, no, look, look above the clouds. And I kind of looked and there, was these, there were clouds and then looked above the clouds. And rising above the clouds was this huge mountain, Mount Kenya and I just remember a kind of shrinking feeling where you know I, I didn't even know how high to look but this mountain that God had put in place it it stopped me in my tracks I was I felt very small but actually Peter's not even saying that he's not trying to put you in your place and say just look and see how great God is, how mighty he is, and then realise that you're just small and insignificant and pathetic. Now, the way Peter actually wants to humble us is to say, this remarkable God, the God who made all things, who flung the stars into the sky, he cares for you. That's actually how he wants to humble you, not to put you down under God's mighty hand, but to say that mighty hand is for you. It is always operating and working to lift you up, to help you to stand firm. And if that doesn't humble us, then nothing will. You see, God's hand in the Old Testament is always used for the good of his people to rescue them from Egypt, to save them. And Peter is saying, you may feel weak and insignificant, but the thing that's really going to humble you is as God comes alongside you and with his mighty hand lifts you up out of the dust, 
unworthy as you are, he lifts you up and puts your feet on solid ground. Now, the reason that's humbling is because that means that you never need to prove yourself to anyone in here or even to God. You don't need to solve your problems yourself. You can run to God with your problems. So Peter is saying, as you seek to stand firm, humble yourself by giving everything to God. What are you struggling with today? Tell God about it. And once you've told him, stay with him and talk to him until you have nothing more to say, until your whole heart has been unburdened and you discover that his mighty hand is for you. Psalm 63 describes God as the rock who is higher than I am. There's a story told of uh, 1862, December 1862, some sailors were sailing around the north coast of Scotland and storms in, that, in those previous weeks had shipwrecked a number of boats off the rocky northern coast. And this particular boat was going through stormy waters, hit a rock and started to sink. And the sailors abandoned ship and sought to swim to shore. And where they managed to swim to was basically just some sheer cliffs. And what they discovered was the only way to be saved was as they, as the tide brought them in and lifted them up, they could grab onto a rock that was higher than they were. And they clung onto that rock and they climbed onto it and they, they stood on it as the waves crashed against the walls. And when the storm subsided, people came and lowered some ladders and rescued them. You see, that is what God is like. He is the rock who is higher than we are. As the, the storms of life toss you about, there is a rock that you can cling to. You don't have to save yourself. God himself does that for you. And that is humbling. And Peter says at the end in verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. You see, God uses his mighty hand to care for you, to rescue you. And as you go through life, he does everything necessary to bring you safely home. You see, one of the things I believe the New Testament and the whole Bible teaches is that from beginning to end, God is the author and the finisher of our faith. My faith does not rely on me. You see, if I was sovereign over my faith, it would be a disaster. And Peter says, don't be proud. Don't think that we do it. Be humble. From beginning to end, God has you in the palm of his hands. And actually, that humility is like breathing fresh air. Because you can just breathe out a sigh of relief and say, it's not what I do, but what he has done and what he is doing. So look in the mirror. We are sheep in need of shepherds. But look up. Because there is a mighty hand acting on our behalf. And Peter says, also be humble by looking over your shoulder. Verse 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, 
standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You see, having just said everything is in God's hands, it's true. We're also to be humble enough to realise that to be a Christian takes effort. We're not passive in it. Peter says, be alert and of sober mind because we have an enemy who is trying to devour us. And we're to be humble enough to recognise that we need help to stand against him. We can't just dismiss the devil as meaningless, as if he can't do anything to us. We need to be humble enough to cry out to God to help us as we seek to resist him. I told this story a while ago and Emma corrected me, so I'll try and be more close to the truth. When we were living in Kenya, occasionally we'd visit Nairobi. Nairobi has a a national park just well within the bounds of the city and you can go into the national park and see different animals in there but there weren't electric fences the whole way around the park so the animals could kind of wander freely and there's a, a neighborhood in Kenya called Karen and in Karen occasionally very occasionally the lions would escape from the national park or come out of the national park and they would literally be wandering along the streets uh, of this neighborhood And so there would be warnings going out on social media and people would be saying, stay in your homes because the lions are on the street. Now, in some senses, that's what Peter is saying to us. Not hide in your holes, but he's saying, be aware, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He is prowling around trying to devour you. Don't think that he can't do anything to you. Be alert, be aware. Heed the warning. One of the church fathers described Satan like this. He said, he goes around us individually and like an enemy besieging those shut up, he examines the walls and explores whether there might be some part of our members less firm and less trustworthy. He offers to the eyes unlawful appearances and seductive pleasures that he may destroy purity through sight. He promises earthly honours that he may take away heavenly ones. Do you see in that quote how important Christian community is? We are like, well, we are like a human wall with our arms linked together. And the devil is prowling, seeking to find chinks in our armour, seeking to find areas of weakness. And that's challenging for us as a community. It's not just, am I going to be okay, but are we going to be okay? Are there people in here who need our care and support? Because the devil is full of tricks. Here in Peter, he's described as a lion. Elsewhere, he's described like a snake or as a wolf in sheep's clothing. You see, whatever guise he comes in, his aim is always the same. Sometimes he's blatant and he comes to you and he assails you with temptations of pride, lust, envy and anger. At other times, he's more subtle. Maybe he'll use our attempts at justice or our desire to be seen as more good than others or our desires to try and achieve peace at all costs or to promote progress. Maybe he'll use that. But you see, he won't be able to do that if we link our arms together and we pray for one another and we encourage one another and support each other. Peter's saying, don't listen to the whispers of Satan. He's been whispering from the beginning. Did God really say... He comes to you and he whispers and says, it's okay to indulge in that particular sin. 
don't worry about saying no to Jesus because the shame and embarrassment will be really difficult for you to take. Did God really say? And Peter says, resist him. Be alert, be aware. The New Testament says, put on the armour of God. Be persistent in prayer. Be faithful at worship. Meditate on and wield God's word as Jesus did in the, de- in the desert. Commit yourself to obedience. And even rebuke the devil. He has no power over you. And that's the beauty of what Peter says. He says in verse 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He says in verse 10, that God himself will sustain you and encourage you. And in the midst of that, he says, watch out for the devil. But the thing the New Testament consistently says is that the canvas of your life is not being painted by the devil. The canvas of your life is not being painted by the empires of this world. The canvas of your life is painted by your heavenly father. And yet Peter knew that the threat was real. Jesus said to him in Luke twenty two thirty one, Satan has asked me to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And here's the amazing thing. Peter didn't just know that the devil was trying to devour him. Peter had experienced that devouring power. And yet he'd also experienced the remarkable grace of Jesus. So though he failed, God restored him. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And so verse 10, no matter if you have failed, no matter where you are and you feel like the devil has been devouring you for some time, verse 10 says, God will restore what has been lost, damaged or wounded. If you are his, nothing, particularly not your failures, can snatch you from his hand. So as we come to the end of 1 Peter, let me just challenge us in this way. We're to be humble by submitting to our leaders, by looking to God and crying out to him, by being alert and aware. But one of the things that 1 Peter encourages us to do is this. It says in chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that, and in some senses this is the application of all that we've looked at, so that you may pray, so that you may Pray. It's 1949 and the People's Republic of China has just been established. China is ruled by Mao Zedong, an atheist dictator, and his desire is to destroy Christianity at any price. They think in those days there were about a million Christians in China. And for the next 30 years, from 1950 to 1980, they face severe persecution, imprisonment, pastors being abused, Bibles being burnt in their thousands. And yet, by 1979, 30 years later, those one million believers had become 10 million. That number soon doubled, and now conservative estimates say there may be in the region of 80 to 100 million Christians in China. And people commenting on this have asked, well, how did that happen? How did that happen? One of the things you notice if you look at the history of China in 1949 is that the defining characteristic of Christians in China in that day was that they prayed. They spent day after day after day praying that God would revive his church in China, that God would sustain them that God would bless them, that God would cause them to grow. It is probably 
one of history's greatest revivals, and it began and was sustained and continued on its knees. That's actually the best way we can show humility. And I say that pretty humbled by that, actually. The most humble thing we can do is to get on our knees and to cry out to our Father in heaven to sustain us, to bless us, to be with us, to help us live as exiles and strangers in this world. And that's actually what he wants us to do. I kind of think, James, God wants you to go and do remarkable things and be an orator and all all these things. And actually, no, God wants me and he wants you to get on your knees and to cry out to God, to give your life to him and to ask him to be with you and to bless you. One of the greatest revivals in history began on its knees. And maybe we need to ask ourselves why we don't see revival in this land. Is there something to do with that? But as I finish, let me say this. 1 Peter is perhaps one of the most challenging books in the New Testament. Haven't you felt that as we've been through some of these different passages? As Peter's kind of turned the microscope on our lives and said, stop doing that. Start committing yourself more wholeheartedly to Jesus. But... The dominant note of 1 Peter, it's the dominant note of Peter's life is however much we have failed, however much we have thought we would be great and then we've let God down and let ourselves down, Jesus is more full of grace than we are of sin. Peter experienced that himself in John 20. Having denied Jesus three times, Jesus lovingly takes him by the hand and restores him three times. And that's what 1 Peter is doing. It's saying, here's some challenging things. Live as exiles in the world. But as you do it, hold the hand of Jesus, the pioneer of your faith, the trailblazer, the one who himself went through suffering so that no suffering you're called to, you're called to on your own. And do it knowing that Jesus has triumphed. That no suffering in this life can hurt you to the extent that it harms you eternally. Nothing in this life can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he went into death and triumphed over it. We're going to celebrate that as we take communion together. But let me finish in prayer.